Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Today we're talking about Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed. This is a really great novel. It has a tremendous amount of insight. Ursula Le Guin has a tremendous... She always has a tremendous amount of insight on the political level and the social level, always revealing non-obvious things about ourselves in her science fiction. This particular novel won both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards, and it focuses on two worlds, sister worlds, and one of them is very much like us, and the other one is a society of anarchists. So, to start off, I thought we'd look at something from Wikipedia. I have an article here from Wikipedia. I in, in general, Wikipedia has some very interesting articles. Uh, the ones on general ideas are often very good. Some of their ideas and some of their articles on physics and so on are really quite good. Some of their general ideas on on uh, their general articles on political thought, political political concepts are also very good. Um, their their great weakness is anyone who's controversial. Because if you have controversial people, you get flame wars going on in Wikipedia, otherwise known as revert wars. So it's very unreliable with regard to personalities. But it's very reliable. Well, it's very interesting. It has a very interesting set of articles on some themes, such as uh, anarchy. has a good article on that. Some concepts in physics, chemistry, has good articles on that. If you wanted to find out stuff about Max Planck, it has nice articles on that. It's a really interesting source, but be very careful, especially with anything dealing with controversy. Uh, it, it's 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 tremendously weak. So when I bring in an article about Wikipedia, that doesn't endorse Wikipedia as a source, and you should never cite Wikipedia in a in a in a paper as an authority because it's written by anybody that just logs on and just writes it. So, but with general concepts such as anarchy or concepts of revolution or concepts of political thought, Hobbes, things like that, then those articles tend to be you know, less susceptible to revert wars and flame wars and things like that, and they can be quite good. So here's an article on Wikipedia about anarchy, which helps us to talk about the dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. What is anarchy? Let's hear what it says here. Although in common parlance, anarchy may refer to the breakdown of order following the collapse of a state, um, the term as used in this article refers to a stateless society. Several forms of stateless societies will be discussed. Anarchies that result from political strife, tribal anarchies, and anarchist communities and projects. Well, that's very interesting. When well, what's the main planet? The main planet in in uh, the dispossessed, the big one, where all the diverse humans are, the non-anarchists. Stellaris. 
Yeah. Yeah. Urus. That's right. Urus. And then, um, when the people of Urus. Uh, oh, and what's the what's the name of the other planet? Is it Anarius? Yeah. Yeah. So when the when you have um, the people of Eurus looking at the societies, the anarchist society on its sister world, how do they think about it? How do they describe it on Anaris? How do they think about it? In general, just you know, no, not being specific, what's sort of the general view of world of what society must be like out there on Anaris. The anarchists. How would the how would the the people of Eurus describe the anarchists? I get the impression they find it barbaric. Barbaric, yeah. What else? Barbaric's good. What else? Certainly, they don't approve of it. Mm-hmm. They don't like it. They don't think it's a good thing. But how would they describe it in terms of in terms of politics? In terms of their in terms of the politics? How would they describe it? They'd say barbaric. But what more do you mean by barbaric? How, 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 give some more meat on those bones. How would they describe the politics of that barbarous state or non-state? Well, there's a lot of war and violence that like, would contribute to their negative impression of it. Well, let me see here. A lot of A lot of difficulties, for sure. What do you mean by war and violence? I mean, because of, like, the different styles of government on the two planets and um, the people who live on the one that is stateless, like... Anaris. Yes, they're not going to have... Like, they just view things differently. Like, they see... Um, the control, like, how it leads to conflict. How uh, the control leads to conflict. So the war and the violence, the troubles that you're going to get, they'd be more typical of the type of things you'd end up with on Eurus. The conflict, kind of remember when in Eurus you have all types of risk of, of conflicts coming out. What kind of... When they say anarchy, do they really mean... Do they really mean total loss of order? Let's look at the definition here. Anarchy resulting from political strife. Anarchy may exist in societies, this is from Wikipedia, where a state has never existed or where a previous state has collapsed. This condition of statelessness as a result of political strife is to be distinguished from tribal anarchies and anarchist communities. 
before the Islamic Courts Union took control, Somalia was the only country in the world without a functioning state. Abdo Vingakar, a Somalian living in Sweden, was quoted in an article by BBC, by BBC saying, I am from Somalia and to live without government is the most dangerous system. The article went on to discuss the abject poverty experienced by the citizens of his country. Now, of course, that Islamic government in Somalia has been overthrown uh, with the help of the Ethiopians just recently, and that's not in this Wikipedia article, so it's out of date. But nonetheless, it's interesting. Let's talk about tribal anarchies. According to Pulitzer Prize-winning evolutionary biologist and historian Jared Diamond, Polynesian hunter-gatherer tribes on islands with low population density and low population size tended towards egalitarianism, nearly indistinguishable government, and equally distributed power. Now there's a quote here. The Chathams and the Atolls had the simplest, most egalitarian societies. While those islands retained the original Polynesian tradition of having chiefs, their chiefs wore little or no visible signs of distinction, lived, lived in ordinary huts like those of commoners, and grew or caught their food like everyone else. Social distinctions and chiefly powers increased on high-density islands with large political units, being especially marked on Tonga and the societies. Well, that's very interesting. What we see with tribal anarchies is a little bit sort of what we're seeing with Anaris, isn't it? Egalitarian societies. We'll talk about the roles of men and women on Anaris. But this lack of... What, what, what do you get with an egalitarian society? What's the nature of egalitarian? What does egalitarian mean? I'm not sure if this is true, but there seems to be laws that are understood but not necessarily written, and everybody kind of abides by them. It's like their traditions in the society instead of real laws. That's actually a very subtle point, a very good point, that there can be rules that are not written down as laws that people follow. And in fact, did we find that in Anaris? Yeah, I remember him saying at the beginning that there can be laws without them being written down. And the other guy from uh, the Euras didn't really understand that. Mm -hmm. In fact, what was the main reason why Dr. Shevik, who he didn't even call himself a doctor except when he got to Euras, what did the main reason that Shevik, the scientist, had to flee from Anaris, the stateless society, without all these written rules? He had to flee, remember. He had to get out of there. He had to get his, he had a goal, of course, which is to break down the barriers between the two worlds. But what was some of the reasons why he couldn't complete and continue his work on an Anaris? Remember the intellectual rigidity? that he found in the educational structure. He couldn't raise certain points. He couldn't bring up certain new revolutionary ideas in physics. He found it stifling. 
He had to escape, in fact. And that was the society that didn't have the rules. Now, let's take a look here. Let's continue with the Wikipedia article. Anarchist anthropologist David Graeber considers several other tribal gatherer societies, such as those of the Tiv and the Pyroa, to be anarchies comparable to the projects of anarchist thought. Well, so far we've talked about, in this Wikipedia article, the idea of anarchy in Somalia. But, you know, very few people from the outside world would have thought that the Islamic government that took over in Somalia had anything to recommend it. I mean, it was a very brutal government, and it was guilty of all types of human rights abuses. And the outside world looked with glee when Ethiopia, a very poor country, helped with an invasion to boot them out and to put a secular government back in control in Somalia. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with Somalia. It may go back into a anarchist state with a different meaning of the term anarchist. What is the meaning of the term anarchist in Somalia? As we were talking about it then, that would mean like total lack of control, out of control completely. Everyone's, it's a dog-eat-dog world where everybody is fighting just for their own personal survival. So that's one issue with regard to anarchy, but anarchy can also mean something else, which is a uh, set of unwritten rules. Let's think about what we see from these tribal anarchies and think about Britain and compare Britain to the United States. How do we organize our government? What's the bottom line written document that, that organizes the United States government? Constitution. The Constitution of the United States. What is the comparable document for Britain? What's their constitution? It's a good. It's a good reason you don't know. They don't have a constitution. They have. They have thousands and thousands of pages of written law, though, don't they? Yeah, they have their own way of having their law, but they don't have a. They don't have an organizing right. template to organize their society. They work fine as a democracy, but it's all through habit. In fact, one of the, um, some of the great ideas in political theory uh, are organized on the idea that, are organized around the theme that democracy functions not because of the Constitution, not, not because of the Constitution at all, but rather, the Constitution simply reflects, re- reflects the habitual patterns of behavior that have already been adopted by the populace. So that you can't take a photocopy of the U.S. Constitution and say, here, apply this in Nigeria, or here, apply this in Somalia. Here, just follow these rules and everything will be okay. It simply won't work that the Constitution is actually a codification of a set of rules that the people have already informally adopted and habitually accepted. Now, if you think of our Constitution, there were some things in our Constitution that were written but not really fully fleshed out, such as the Court, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not really well-defined in the Constitution. 
And it's certainly not defined as an equal participant in the powers with the presidency and the Congress. That had to be developed because it because it wasn't defined and so well established when the Founding Fathers wrote the Constitution, it had to be developed over the years. And when the Supreme Court's role that we see now as the final arbiter of conflicts, even conflicts within our state between the presidency and the Congress, when we see that, we say, well, does that role come out of the written word of the Constitution? It doesn't. It comes out of the historical evolution of habits of behavior of the way we of the way we uh, have agreed over the centuries over the decades to to act for example the crucial case Marbury versus Madison that was a very important case and those of you who continue to take political science courses here in the department will eventually read about that but the crux of that position was that there was a, an, an ambassadorial appointment that was being contested and the President of the United States didn't want to go through with that particular appointment. And the Supreme Court eventually heard the case and made an interesting decision. The decision was that the appointee was indeed correct and that the that there was a violation of his rights, but that the Supreme Court sided nonetheless with the administration saying that it lacked jurisdiction and some other things with regard to uh, its ability to right these wrongs, but it, 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 in that in that case, it nonetheless stated very clearly that it had the right to make th such decisions when the jurisdictions was were appropriate. So the president was happy because he didn't have to accept an appointment that he didn't like. On the other hand, along with that decision came an understanding that the Supreme Court was sticking its its uh, its foot out and saying, but we have the right as a court to decide such matters. And because the president was actually liking the end result, he didn't contest it, and that so it let it stand, the idea that the Supreme Court could make decisions of deciding constitutionality, certain issues relating to the structure of the government and battles between the Congress and the presidency, it could make those decisions. And that was the beginning. And so when you see the evolution of the Supreme Court, you see a slow, very gradual increase of the power of the Supreme Court to the point where it can make fundamental decisions. Now, now one of the big problems with the Bush versus Gore contest in the year 2000 in the state of Florida is when the Supreme Court finally heard that case, they decided, to the astonishment of many democratic theorists, to seize legally cast ballots 
in the state of Florida that were in the process of being counted, hand counted, to seize them and bring them out of the state of Florida and to put them under lock and key precisely so that they could not be counted. Now that was an astounding thing. And history will, of course, record that as a, as a, as a, a tremendous a tremendous incident where people can question whether the Supreme Court was acting any differently than you would say a, a corrupt dictator, a, a corrupt judiciary in a third world country would act, whether you were siding with one particular party that they happen to agree with. So people are going to ask that. But the reality is that the Supreme Court did itself a great disservice in that in that battle, in that struggle, because it it had millions of people in the United States start to question whether the authority of the Supreme Court was really valid, or was it just a bunch of political hacks that were siding with someone that they wanted. They chose the presidency rather than having the ballots actually decide who won the presidency. So that's what people were asking. And you see, that goes way back to Marbury versus Madison and degrades that. One of the facets of the Rehnquist Court following that incident of year two, uh, during the 2000 election was to lay low. They made very few strong, profound, striking decisions after that. And one of the arguments that's made for why they acted in such a non-controversial fashion is they didn't want to do anything more to upset the apple cart to make people question the authority of the Supreme Court. They knew that it was a big deal, but they did in, in that election, in that 2000 election. And there was a real question. You know, any other further major statements would further raise the possibility that people should say, we shouldn't believe in the Supreme Court. We shouldn't go along with it. The Supreme Court has no military. They have no police force. The only way they get people to go along with what they do is by the force of habit. Now, Al Gore since then has stated that he went along with the decision because there was nothing that you can do in our society after the Supreme Court um, makes a decision other than start a violent revolution. <laughs> and that was not where he wanted to go. But we have no other step other than that. So either you start a revolution or you simply accept what it, whatever the Supreme Court said and uh, go on to the next step and just sort of hope the kinks get worked out of the system, acknowledging that in fact we're all human beings and we can all make mistakes. But you see the force of habit? Al Gore was simply saying we're not going to challenge this force of habit. We're just going to let this case go. Habit is big. And what did the Rehnquist Court do? Similarly, they said we're not going to do anything more that will raise people's awareness that maybe they should stop doing what we that we what we say what they should do. If you if you break that force of habit, then the whole ball of wax comes undone. So, this idea that people act on the level of habit is huge. It's huge. And so, when you have a non-state, an anarchist state, does it really mean there's nothing there, like in Somalia, or does it mean? in most cases, that there are many unwritten rules. Using that argument, you could say that Britain is an anarchy because it has no constitution, but it's ruled by habit. So when we look at 
an RS. Let's remember that there can be rules, but we may not see those rules. We may not see them as forcefully as they clearly are delineated on URIS. So with URIS, you can sort of think of it as more parallel to the United States and an RS. A state, but not the same type of state. Now let's go to the Wikipedia article where it says anarchist communities and anarchist thought. Anarchist thought. Um, anarchists are those who believe that all people are imbued with a sort of commonality, common sense, that would allow for people to, in the absence of the government, come together in agreement to form a functional existence. Morality falls in line with functionality, and its forms differ. Anarchy does not reject ethics or principles, but rather imposes morality. The rise of anarchism is a, as a philosophical movement occurred in the mid-18th century with its notion of freedom as being based upon political and economic self-rule. It was a reaction to the rise of the nation-state and the large-scale industrial capitalism and the corruption that came with their success. Although anarchists are unified in the rejection of the state, they differ about economic arrangements and possible rules that would prevail in a stateless society, ranging from complete common ownership and distribution according to need to supporters of private property and free market competition. For example, most forms of anarchism, such as those that of anarcho-communism, anarcho-syndicalism, or anarcho-primitivism, not only reject, seek rejection of the state, but also other systems which they perceive as authoritarian, which includes capitalism, wage labor, and private property. In opposition, another form, known as anarcho-capitalism, argues that a society without a state is a free market that is both voluntarist and equitable. Now, let's look at those two different types. The first type, anarcho-communism, anarcho-syndicalism, or anarcho-primitivism. not only seek rejection of the state, but also other systems which they perceive as authoritarian, which includes capitalism, wage, labor, and private property. Doesn't that sound like an artist? This idea of selling your labor for cash rather than contributing to the commonality. Okay. In opposition, another form of anarcho-capitalism argues that society without a state is a free market system that is both voluntarist and equitable. Maybe that's not an artist, but what what political ideology here in the United States would match that one? Anarcho-capitalism. You see them running for office every once in a while. They always have a presidential candidate. Independent? Pardon me? Say it. Independent? No, not quite independence. Um, they have a little... They have a party themselves. They're big in Alaska. <laughs> Well, what's they often consider to the right of the Republicans? Libertarians. Libertarians. That's exactly what they believe in. So they're sort of anarchist in the capitalist sense. Don't touch anything. Don't don't, don't do anything except uh, have a defense policy. Leave us alone. Let us do our economic policies however we want. No rules is better than any rules. Is, is the best rule. When used by non-anarchists, the word anarchy is often used as a pejorative. Now we're looking at how Eurus people would look at anarchists. 
so it's often used as a pejorative, intended to connote a lack of control and a negatively chaotic environment. The association is so strong in mainstream society that some anarchists prefer the term anarchism. The question of foregoing the use of either term in favor of libertarian socialist, which primarily during the late 19th century, or the more modern anti-authoritarian remains, remains a topic of debate. The word anarchy, as most anarchists use it, does not imply nihilism, anime, or the total absence of rules, but rather an anti-authoritarian society that is based on spontaneous order of free individuals in, in autonomous communities, operating on principles of mutual aid, voluntary association, and direct action. That's pretty much what Ursula Le Guin is talking about with Anaris, isn't she? Well, let's go to Ursula Le Guin's book. Let's go to page 16. Now, for those of you who have different editions or different printings of the book, page 16, um, it's in chapter 1, and it's a little bit closer to the end than, than the beginning, but it's sort of in the middle. And we're talking about there's a line there that says uh, status is the same as class and what you're having here is you're, we have a, a trip Shevek is actually the beginning of the book introduces Shevek uh, during his uh, trip to Eurus and so he's having a discussion with with the uh, um I think it's uh, with Kimo on the ship, <coughs> and he is describing some of the. Uh, Kimo was trying to explain some of the aspects of. Um, Kimo's a doctor, and he's giving him some, you know, vaccinations and physical exams and things like that, and he's describing some of the aspects of life on Eurus. Does everyone, are you at that spot where it says status is the same as class? Do you see it? Does everyone see that? Do you have it as well? Okay, great. So, uh, Shevik, who now Gimbo was starting to refer to as Dr. Shevik, and Shevik, of course, coming from Menaris, doesn't like to have these honorific titles that put one person over another person. Um, Shevik says, um, status is the same as class? And Kimmel tried to explain what status is, and status, he's trying to explain it, of course, from the perspective of Eurus. Uh, he tried to explain status, failed, and went back to the first topic. Is there really no distinction between men's work and women's work? He's asking Shevik this. And Shevik responds, well, no, it seems a very mechanical basis for the division of labor, doesn't it? A person chooses work according to interest, talent, strength. Well, what has sex to do with that? Well, men are physically stronger, the doctor asserted with professional finality. And then Shevik responds, Yes, often and larger, but what does that matter when we have machines? And even when we don't have machines, when we must dig with the shovel or carry on the back, men maybe work faster, the big ones, but the women work longer. Often I have wished I was as tough as a woman. Well, that 
was sort of a surprise way of thinking of it. And then Kimo stared at him, shocked out of politeness. But the loss of, of everything feminine, of delicacy, and the loss of masculine self-respect, you can't pretend surely that your work, that women, in your work, that women are your equals. In physics and in mathematics, in the intellect, you can't pretend to lower yourself constantly to their level. Bolshevik sat in the cushioned, comfortable chair, looked around the officer's lounge on the view screen. The brilliant curve of Eurus hung still against black space like a blue-green opal. That lovely sight and the lounge had become familiar to Shevik in those days, in those these last days. But now the bright colors, the curvy linear chairs, the hidden lighting, the game tables and television screens and soft carpeting, all of which seemed alien, as alien as it had the first time he saw it. I don't think I pretend... Uh, I don't think I pretend very much, Kimo, he said. Of course, I have known highly intelligent women, this is Kimmel talking, uh, women who could think just as a man, the doctor said, hurriedly aware that he had been almost shouting, that he had, Shevik thought, been pounding his hands against the locked door and shouting. Well, Shevik turned the conversation, but he went on thinking about it. This matter of superiority and inferiority must be a central one in Eurasti's social life. Hmm. What about this idea that superiority and inferiority? What does that have to do with this? This can be considered perhaps a key concept that that Ursula Le Guin is investigating in this novel. What about not just in regard to the novel, but in regard to our society here? How much of our society runs on the level of superiority and inferiority as being recognized distinctions? Go ahead. We're, we're, basis, we're basically, I mean, because we sort of come from England, which was a classist society, and, and we are a classist society, even if it's not um, maybe as defined. Um, and it's it's sort of compared to, like, when we read Brave New World, there, there was a big deal about inferiority and superiority, but there was no superior um, desire, I guess, to be outside of where you were. Um, whereas, like, in America, it's all about getting higher and, and being the superior, um, which is what it's like on Eurus. Yeah, that idea of superiority is profound here. Look at the university level. Wouldn't I normally be considered the superior? I'm the professor. Well, that's actually one of the reasons I told all of my students going back to the beginning when I started to teach at the university that they should not call me Dr. Brown or Professor Brown, but just Courtney, the first name. In the sense of the anarchist, Shivak. Rather than calling him Dr. Shivak, just call him Shivak. The idea is that when you say Dr. Brown or Professor Brown, 
what you're doing is automatically associating yourself in an inferior status. And when you do that, you stop the thinking process. You can no longer intellectually engage with me on an equal level and thus grow. You stop it and you say, give me information and what I will find out is what you want. And then because you are my superior, I will feed you back what you want. And it stops the thinking process. It's the death of thinking. Now, a lot of my colleagues, both in my department and around the university, would have heart attacks with the idea of having all the students calling them by their first name. On the other hand, I go just the opposite. The herd is going in that direction. I don't go the opposite. Because what is important in my students is to engage the thinking process, not to get the superiority, inferiority thing riveted into your minds. It's not like you're going to work as an inferior till you're finally achieved the status of the superior and then reign over your dominion. <laughs> That's not what it's all about. The question is, are you going to think as independent individuals? And what were we talking about last time with respect to free will? How can you have free will as students? And how can you even try to achieve independence in thought if you're looking at a professor as a superior? It's impossible. It's a total contradiction in terms. If the professor is your superior and you must bow down intellectually and find out what that professor wants and feed it back, the idea of free will is impossible. And what will you learn after doing that for 30 years? And you'll finally become middle-aged. What will you learn as someone when you're then in power? The only thing you will have learned is the importance of and how to stop intellectual growth. And that's what we have in our society. We have a society worldwide that is based on the stifling of intellectual growth. Remember what Max Planck said, the physicist. He said, great changes in physics occur not because someone comes up with a brand new idea and everyone says, wow, you finally figured it out. That's great. That's wonderful. I'm glad that problem solved. Now let's go on to the next problem. That's not what happens. What Max Planck observed was that some young people, graduate students usually, that haven't been, some rebellious graduate students that haven't been quite so indoctrinated to the idea of just believing what their superiors say, come up with some new ideas. And then the old timers, 40 years old, 45, 50 years old, they resist. They say, no, that's not the dominant paradigm that I grew up with. And you literally have to wait till the Middle Agers die, till they retire and die and move off the set. They get off the movie set. They get off the screen. They get out of there. And then the graduate students become older and middle-aged, and that's when you get the paradigm shifts, when you get the replacement of the current establishment of intellectuals with the younger crowd. But given that that is the nature of the replacement process, what happens when those younger people become middle-aged? They have learned the rigidity of thought as well. And then they enforce their ideas, which means the dominant ideas that you are always exposed to 
at the university predominantly are obsolete. You're getting stuff at the university, at any university, Harvard, Emory, Stanford, Yale, at Emory University, you're getting stuff that is predominantly 20, 30 years out of date. It's the stuff that the graduate students 20, 30 years ago were thinking of that were revolutionary at the time, but now they've become middle-aged and they're establishing that and giving it to you as the paradigm of the day. If you want to know what's cutting edge, you have to find rebellious graduate students and say, what are you guys thinking? <laughs> and then, mind you, you have to find the rebellious graduate students. There are a lot of graduate students that are not rebellious. You have to disregard those. You have to find just the rebellious graduate students and, you s and find out what they're thinking. And when you find one that comes up with a really good idea, you say, wow, that's great. I'm gonna that's what you hang on to. Some professors, some older professors know this and are aware of this and actually seek out young graduate students and try to co-author articles with them and work with them precisely because they say, you know, that's where the really revolutionary ideas are going to come from. But you, if you understand the process, can remain young in spirit all throughout your life. It's a way of thinking, that idea of superiority and inferiority concept. Well, in this novel, Ursula Le Guin is clearly diving deep into that concept. The idea of superiority and inferiority as a sort of a fundamental concept that organizes society. But I think it has its merits in a society. I think a hierarchical society really... Um works a lot better than anarchy because the anarchy assumes a lot about human nature and somebody's going to take advantage of all that. Well, that's a really good and interesting point. So, I don't think anarchy really works at all. What do you two think? I mean, I think that anarchy has worked, but it was before even, you know, it was before we planted. Um, like, I, I mean, I think... As a, as a, you know, as a human society, as planter gatherers, we, you know, did pretty well for ourselves. But as soon as we started um, dealing with property and dealing with um, uh, agriculture, and then thus state and um, money, uh, I think it's those um, industries sort of lend themselves so much to gaining power that you, you do need some sort of regulation for it. Um, and I don't think that we can go back to being a hunter-gatherer society anytime soon. Um, I definitely agree with that. I mean, as a hunter-gatherer society, um, food and stuff like that took up so much of our time, and now it doesn't take up really any of our time. So we have more time to accumulate material possessions. So basically, you think that anarchy doesn't work in a modern society? Yes. So you're saying that anarchy doesn't work in a modern system. It's an idealistic society that is not really practical. Is that another way of saying what you're thinking? Yeah, like I think what, and maybe maybe the American government isn't so great right now, but I think what worked so well for it is that it depended on um, power-thirsty people to run it um, because it balanced... Um, with with checks and, and balances, so that you know even if Congress got really you know 
power thirsty. It had the the judiciary and the president to to sort of also be power thirsty and say, well, no, you can't have that power because I want that power. And um, I think that's why American government has has worked so well is because it sort of relies on our weaknesses as human beings. Mm-hmm. The checks and balances that gives a high level of structure to the American government sort of contains the idea of superiority, meaning you have various branches that all feel that they're superior and fight against each other, thus producing a system of impotence. Then in some way, didn't the Founding Fathers sort of like the idea of some level of anarchy if they set up the government to be in large part impotent? It's a really brilliant system to be able to use um, that kind of weakness to um, control ourselves instead of, you know, having to take over everything like you see in, like, dictatorships and everything. Hmm. And also, like, your opinion of anarchy is just based on your idea of whether human nature is good or bad to so much of that comes into effect because like you were saying you don't think it works because um, it has you think anarchy has to be based on the fact that human nature is good but that sometimes that's not true and it'll be taken advantage of so yeah but I mean let's face it nobody who's realistic honestly believes that human nature is good it's not good we're selfish that's why we survive right But I'm just saying that there are people who disagree with you on that. So that's like... (laughs) Well, we were talking about that selfish nature early on with the ideas of Edward O. Wilson, where the evolutionary march throughout the ages is that he who dies with the most toys wins (laughs) argument of evolution. Darwinian's uh, evolution emphasizes those people who look for the food that's in front of their own face first, secondly, the family, and a distant third, the village, and a very distant third, fourth rather, the the world, that those people are the most selfish will in fact survive evolutionarily. And thus the genes of humans will be predominantly those of selfish people. They think about number one, herself or himself first genetically embedded into the thinking process of humans Edward O. Wilson's ideas along those idea along those lines are fascinating it also raises the issue of free will again if you're genetically predispositioned to be selfish how free are you to decide to cooperate Meaning, can you really have a society of anarchists that is peaceful, like you have in Anaris? If the genes are structured to be selfish, and thus requiring the arguments that all of you are raising right now, which is that the United States government is a good form of government because it contains the selfishness. If the genetic predisposition is to be selfish, 
then is a state of anarchy even possible? That's been a question that's been around in the anarchist circles for a long time. Another thing that I thought was interesting is that when we were talking about the hunter-gatherer societies, mm-hmm. it was, they worked mainly because we had to spend so much of our time just surviving. And now that we don't have to do that, now that I guess that we're bored, mm-hmm. we, like, it's just interesting that when we don't have to work so hard to survive that our interactions with other people weaken. Mm. I just think that's interesting. Our interactions with other people weaken. And say it again, under what conditions? Be very explicit. Um, under the conditions that we're not having to work to survive, that all of our basic needs are met easily through modernity. Through what? Through modernity. as in uh, Modernity. Uh-huh. So in a society in which our needs are met, where we don't have to struggle to survive, what do you then say happens? It seems to bring um, more conflict and more... um, That there's more conflict or less conflict? More. And it, it just seems to bring like a negative interaction between people, which... It almost doesn't even make sense to me because it would seem like if you were working hard to survive without some, in a stateless society, without some overlying system controlling you, mm-hmm. that you would have more violence because you're really competing with other humans mm-hmm. to survive. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the complacency kind of causes a paranoia um, and then a sense of, you know, like self-preservation mm-hmm. causes inward collapse because, like, people want to, um, mm. they really just want to survive. But um, you had to try so hard to survive before and you feel like you should be doing that, but you aren't. So you need to compete with everybody else and all that. Hmm. But now, do most people even feel like they're trying to survive? I mean, I'm, I'm just talking about, like, specifically in America, like, I'm, I would argue that most people wake up and don't. That's the problem, though, because the survival instinct is still there, but they um, aren't using it, so right. it has to go somewhere else, you know? In an age of abundance... Where does the survival instinct get used? That's what you're asking. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's um, in wars, like when you saw the great wars, like World War One and World World War Two, and now we're, we don't have much to fight about anymore, except oil. It's like we're except creating oil. our own conflicts. And we don't even have to fight about oil. I mean, there are ways to avoid this, but nobody's using it. Mm. That's very interesting. If we were to look at the Iraq conflict as one of the first echo wars, ecology wars, wars in which we're fighting over scarce resources, we would probably see a situation in which that happens more frequently in the future. And then this issue of selfishness becomes a big issue. For example, as the North Pole melts, and it seems to be 
a solid conclusion of basically all, all scientists that by around the year 2040, the, south, the North Pole will be melted completely in the, in the summertime, which will mean you can take a boat to the North Pole. The North Pole has no land underneath it, so it's just ice. So if that's true, if you have much of Greenland melted and much of the, or all of the North Pole melted, very soon perhaps, with all that fresh water pouring into the oceans from the north, you'd have the cessation, the stoppage of the Gulf Stream. And with the Gulf Stream stopping, that is a pump that pumps a lot of warmth from the tropics up towards Great Britain. So one of the oddities of global warming is that Great Britain may freeze over in which case you'd have to potentially evacuate nearly all of Great Britain. It's a lot of people. Where would they go? And this, if it's going to happen, it would likely happen in your lifetime, well before the North Pole is completely melted. It would probably happen very soon, like within 10, 15, 20 years, if it's going to happen at all. And the real question is, what happens in situations then when we may be currently in a situation of abundance, but where do you place land and jobs in that context of abundance when an entire island like Britain has to be removed? Where the population has to go? Where do they go? Do they go to France? Will the United States allow all Britons to come to the United States? Will they all go to Canada? I have like a geographical, a geographical question. Does Greenland... Greenland is not just ice, right? No, Greenland is solid land okay. underneath a huge layer of ice. Okay. And when Greenland melts and Antarctica melts, which is also... Antarctica is under... It's got land as well. So that's much more severe than when the North Pole melts. And when the North Pole melts, you don't get a lot of global sea, rate, sea change. Because, for example, if you put an ice cube into water, part of the ice cube floats above the water, and a lot of it floats below. But when all the ice melts, this, the level of the water remains the same. Because you get displacement. That's what happens with the North Pole. With Greenland and Antarctica, however, it's the opposite. That ice is not in the water, like the North Pole water. That ice is above the water on dry land. And when they melt, the sea levels rise considerably. And the last time historically when that much ice melted, the sea levels rose by 70 meters, which is a few hundred feet. Now, of course, then we're talking about this. Actually, even if the sea levels rise by only three feet, we're talking about the evacuation of places like Washington, D.C. and New York and places like that. But New Orleans would be dead, it would be dead long before that. But the real question we have to ask is what happens when you get these huge population migrations? I did raised a question with regard to Britain. If it freezes over, people can't just stay there. If it becomes a glacier. Um, so the real question is what happens when our society changes from an age of abundance rather rapidly 
to an age of scarcity, where the scarcity is defined not in terms of goods, but survival qualities, aspects of things that we need to survive, such as arable land, food, places we can grow food on. Great Britain can't grow things on ice. It's hard to grow crops in Greenland. <laughs> There's a lot of you just can't put a seed on a block of ice and expect something to grow. So what happens when Britain follows that follows that direction? So these are real questions. And then you're going to say, well, if our society is based on one of superiority and inferiority, how do we define superiority and how do we define inferiority in a context of scarcity? Is superiority simply those who have and inferiority those who have not? Is that how we define it? In which case, the Brits, which now we would say live in the context of a developed nation, we might call them superior relative to the developing nation, which scarcity is, is more prevalent. What happens when that reverses? You get the same people. The same Brits are the same as they always were, but now you have scarcity dominating. Well, let's, let's finish up the novel, make sure it's completely read by next Tuesday, and we'll get deep into Ursula Le Guin. What I would like you to do is to isolate passages in the novel that you find are particularly relevant politically. Just like I find a passage and I read it to you, I'd like each person to find one passage that you find is particularly relevant politically and be able to read it to the class and discuss it. Is that okay? Great.